0: bookworms in the wild and from Anchor. I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before I welcome my guest today, let me briefly run through the books I've recently read and recommend. Here we go. I'll start with two classics. I read both Melville's Moby Dick and Tolstoy's War and Peace with an online book club created by a public space a wonderful, independent, non-profit publisher. Both books are masterpieces and highly recommended. Don't let their length deter you. A couple of years ago, I tried to read A Little Life by Hanya Yanakahara, which has received wide praise. I found it to be too dark and too violent for me. I was therefore hesitant to read Two Paradise by Yanakahara, but I did, and it's great. It's also disturbing, distressing, traumatizing, dystopian, and sad. Really extraordinary, what an experience. More uplifting despite its title is the book written by our brilliant friend, Dylan Merritt. The book is called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Based on what he has learned from talking to strangers who had attacked him on the internet, Dylan discusses the ability of restorative and loving conversations and empathy break down hostile barriers. Absolutely beautiful, all of it. Actually groundbreaking, it should be read by everyone. The Year That Broke America by New York Magazine writer Andrew Rice. Stories from 22 years ago in Florida. Bush Gore, hanging chads at the Supreme Court, young Cuban immigrant Ilian Gonzalez, flight training screws for the 9-11 hijackers, money laundering for arms dealers. Who would have thought there would be this kind of chaos in Florida? Hoping to have Andrew on the podcast to discuss the chaos. Empire of Pain by Patrick Raiden Keefe, who's a staff writer at The New Yorker. Like the DopeSick miniseries about the opioid epidemic, the book is absolutely chilling. Narrative nonfiction at its best. Thanks to Melanie for recommending the book and the miniseries. And to our local Italian restaurant in the city, La Valletta, where I found the book in Luigi's Free Library. A Paragon by Colin McCain, given to me by Woodstock friend Jim Nelson, is a hybrid novel based on the true-life friendship of two men, one Israeli and one Palestinian, whose daughters were killed in Israel. A beautiful and heart-wrenching story. The Naked Don't Fear the Water by Matthew Akins, a compelling Afghani refugee story, too reminiscent of current events around the world, but hard to put down. And a historical reminder, The Passenger by Ulrich Alexander Boschwitz, written in 1938 by a 23-year-old German Jew. It's a reminder of the physical and psychological trauma and other horrors to which Jews were subjected in Nazi Germany. Regret for not having fully appreciated the danger. Regret for not having left the country. Betrayal of Jews by former friends. Hopelessness and a feeling that these horrors were unbelievable. A compelling story with a tragic ending, one of the many possible tragic endings that presented itself. I didn't plan it this way, but I read another book about German Jews. Our Crowd, The Great Jewish Families of New York by Stephen Birmingham. German-Jewish immigration to New York in the 19th century and the migration as well from tenements on the Lower East Side to Park Avenue mansions. The Lehmans, the Goldmans, the Saxes, and many other merchants and bankers. Fascinating. Then, The Dutch House by Ann Patchy. Sweet story, well-drawn characters. Rare for me to listen to a book. A good part of the enjoyment was listening with Carol to the Tom Hanks narration on Drives to Woodstock. Finally, I recently read two murder mysteries. These are not my kind of books. I don't usually read books like this. I read history, I read biographies. I read big, long, serious novels. I love historical fiction. I can't remember if I've even ever read mysteries, much less murder mysteries. But James Conrad at the Golden Notebook in Woodstock once again made fabulous recommendations. Both are page turners. The Other Family is by Wendy Corsi Staub. It's a gripping homicide mystery set in Brooklyn. I loved it. And The Collective is by Allison Galen. I get chills when I just think of the name of the book. Devastating ending an absolute dagger through my heart, loved it as well. I hope to talk with both authors and with James on future podcasts. And now for today's guest. My guest today is Mark Weeks, a friend and former colleague at Oreck, Harrington & Sutton. Mark has practiced law at Oreck in New York and Tokyo for more than 30 years. And after many years as a partner and head of Oreck's Tokyo office, Mark is now a senior counsel at the firm. Mark, thanks for joining me to talk about your debut novel and your writing journey.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Howard. My pleasure.
0: It appears that much of your novel overlaps with your career. Your novel includes a global technology lawyer and a tech client in Japan. Sounds a little bit like what you've been doing for the last several decades. First, tell us about the novel without giving away the ending, and then tell us about how you decided to write a novel and this one in particular.
1: Howard, before we uh, get to that, um, and, and obviously more than happy to talk about that, I wanted to mention a few things about Moby Dick. Uh, I I just, I just find it very interesting that you just fortuitously, uh, read it recently. Um, I've read it twice, uh, when I was a teenager and then later on, um, I think in my late forties. And, um, uh, sort of like when I read, uh, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance or tried to when I was 18 and then read it again, I think when I was 40, I got far more out of Moby Dick later on in life, but Moby Dick is a, is a fascinating novel, uh, for, for many reasons. But, but one uh, is, I, I think it's something that may not get published today, at least by traditional publishing house. Um, because it just doesn't, if it's not fast paced enough and, and, uh, A friend of mine once described it as um, a a novel of 100 pages on each end um, with an encyclopedia on whaling um, sandwiched in the the middle of it. (laughs) Um, And there is a lot in there that's fascinating about whaling that comes from, obviously, Herman Melville's own experience in whaling, and then also uh, the tragedy of the ethics being stoved in by an actual incident, stoved in by a a giant male sperm whale. And I think, I think uh, that uh, story was relayed um, in a book called In the Heart of the Sea. Uh, but um, one, one little anecdote in, in that novel that sticks out in my mind to this day, and I fish a lot and, and, and mostly in saltwater, and that comes back to me from time to time when I'm in a situation that's somewhat sketchy, was when the, um, the cabin boy fell overboard and got separated from the mothership hmm. Terrible. and saw the the whaling you know boats that being um pulled away by by the whale sort of over the horizon and realized he was stuck in the middle of the Pacific five thousand miles from the nearest land, and how that had altered altered his psyche uh basically forever um and I, that's one of to, to me the more brilliant um passages in in that book um which says a lot because it's among many but there's a couple of other interesting things about that, that book, you know, Herman Melville, obviously very sharp guy and and very analytical. And, uh, and he, as you may recall, went through this whole analysis about whether, um, whales were mammals or not. Right. And, um, and, and it's a great analysis and he goes through the the entire analysis and gets to the end and and reaches the wrong conclusion, basically (laughs) ignoring all of the previous evidence that he just cited and then saying, um, well, but it swims in, in water, so it must be a fish.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and Remember it, that? Yes, and, and, and the whale is called a fish throughout the book.
1: Exactly. And, and I just thought that was fascinating because he just goes through er- everything, all the evidence points to it being a mammal, and he said, yeah, but it's fish. And the other analysis that was also very well done was, why, are we, why do we have to go all the way to, to the Pacific now to get whales? when we used to find them off of Nantucket. And uh, the, the question was, is it because of over And he, he goes through all the evidence. Uh, and again, it's, it's a great analysis. And at the end says, no, it's not because of over It's because they've changed their migration pattern.
0: Oh, yes.
1: And uh, I, I just thought that the, 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 the level of denial um, on, on both of those scores re- reminds me of, you know, things we've seen over the course of our lifetime, like the level of denial by cigarette companies over the hazards of smoking, for example, notwithstanding all the evidence in, in one direction. And it, and, it, you know, obviously, he was biased because he was a former whaler. Anyway, I, 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 that's, it's a great book for many reasons. But uh, those are three examples. And obviously, it's, you know, it's a timepiece as well. But, but I just found those three um, parts of it uh, fascinating.
0: I'm, I'm so I'm so glad you jumped in on Moby Dick. It, it was absolutely incredible book. I read it a couple of years ago, inspired by um, a product created by two individuals, Steph Kent and Logan Smalley, who created something called Me Ishmael. Uh, the first line of the book, of course. Uh, they created a voicemail box, which exists today. And I'll put the phone number for the voicemail box on my website, um, where after you read a book, you can call in, or even if you haven't, you can call in and talk about the book. And that's stored and cataloged. And then anybody interested in a book can call in and get a summary of the book or get somebody's impressions about the book. And I met them and I had them on my podcast. Uh, So I have a discussion with them on my podcast about uh, Call Me Ishmael, as well as about the books they're reading and I thought, well, I might as well read Moby, Bit, Moby Dick. And I turned around, and on my shelf, I had a copy from the Book of the Month Club, which I must have had delivered to me in around 1970 or so. And so I read it, and I read it on my own. But then, as I mentioned, there's a publisher called A Public Space that has book clubs, and uh, they, there's a professor at Princeton, uh, Yi Yun Lee, who uh, reads Moby Dick every year. She reads War and Peace every year as well. And last year, we all read War and Peace together, meaning we all thousands of people around the world who every day uh, tweeted impressions about the chapters we were reading. We did that for War and Peace, and we did it this year for Moby Dick. And it's a fascinating way to read, to share commentary with people all over the world and people commenting on each other's comments and very, very interesting. You're quite right that it would be a challenge to publish it today. Probably uh, not only because it's slow moving, right. but it is full of racism, yeah, uh, and uh, other difficulties. Yeah. But um, reading it as a timepiece is absolutely fascinating. It, it it's a great, great read. It is. It's a story of America. I had to remind myself now and again that this all started it actually started in manhattan i was going to say it started in uh, nantucket it started in manhattan and it started in nantucket and there they were in the south pacific
1: yeah and nantucket was the uh center of the oil industry at the time yeah and and by the way didn't uh, melville also write uh, bartleby the scrivener that's a brilliant story as well um i remember when i was a junior associate never seen the light of day Thinking about that from
0: time to time. <laughs> so I, I I see a scrib that says it's the story of Wall Street. So is it Wall Street from the finance point of view or from a legal? It's about point of view?
1: basically a paralegal working. He's a he's a scrip, literally <laughs> a scribner working at a uh,
0: Scrivener, There you
1: go. You know before really obviously typing and maybe that's yes. the time. But he was a scribner and His job is just to you know make copies uh, by hand. Of legal documents, wow. and uh, even even notwithstanding all the technology that we have today, um, it is reminiscent of what it is like to be, you know, a paralegal or a junior associate at a major law firm. Uh, yes. Now, now, of course, is, um, and, and and it's very different from when you and I first started practicing in that technology is now freed up where we can work. For better or for worse, I think it's actually for better uh, from a time. Yeah, yes. But back in the day, you had to go in the office to get anything done. (laughs) Remember to do any research, and that's where the typing pool was, and later the word processing center. um, And uh, it is reminiscent of that. So if you haven't read it, I. I highly recommend
0: it. I, I will definitely read it.
1: Not a, not a happy story, but...
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I understand. And you mentioned in The Heart of the Sea, I believe that's Nathan Philbrick, right? I think that's right. A- yeah, And, and I, I read that uh, even before I read Moby Dick. The size of the whale, the size of whales generally, but it, it comes through in both books, just a massive presence they have in the ocean.
1: I, I find myself rooting for the whale. I do too. <laughs> I,
0: I I'm sure that's one of the tweets I had. I, I was rooting for the whale. I was not rooting against Starbuck. Uh I, there were a number of the uh members of the crew who I became close to <laughs> over time. There were others I could do with it. so Starbuck and Quequig obviously were
1: Yeah, Quequig, he he's off Yes. He's He's a superhero.
0: He is. And, and Ishmael, of course, and I, I was about to say, I, I don't want to give away the ending. Anybody who doesn't know the ending may never know it. But in any event, I won't give away the ending, but uh, Starbuck and Queequeg and Ishmael uh, were obviously favorites. And while I was reading the book over... I think we, re- we read it over 30 days and um, I had to go to a meeting. Somebody asked me to meet them at a Starbucks and I, it just dawned on me. And so I Googled around and of course, Starbucks is named after the first crew mate on the Pequod. I did not. You did, you did not know that. Oh, good. No. <laughs> yeah. That's where it comes from.
1: That, that, that's-
0: <laughs> <laughs> It'll change you every time you go get a Starbucks. Isn't that great?
1: should have named it Queekwig.
0: I should have named it Queekwig. <laughs> 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 Where would Howard Schultz be now? Oh, that's so good. That's so good. How delightful that uh, you lit into Moby Dick and Bottleby and In the Heart of the Sea. That's great. So, you wrote a book as well, I think. Or you, Yeah, you did write yes. a book. So, tell us, yes. tell us about and, it. Uh, so, um, it, it's one of those
1: things that I, I'm sure you've heard this from other authors as well. But, uh, when I was in, um, in grade school, uh, you know, I participated in some writing contests and I, I, I won one, one, two and, and came in second runner up and won. And then I went off to these creative writing conferences. It was joyful for me because it was like two days out of school, basically.
0: Where was this, by the way, geographically, where were you?
1: I went to, um, I was born in Alaska, but I grew up in Idaho, and I went to school um, in a place called Nampa, Idaho, which is west of, of Boise. It was a very small town at the time, and now grown into maybe over 100,000 now. But um, it was tiny when I moved away uh, in 1980. But we went to Boise for the writing... Co- that was the big town uh, for the the writing conferences, and then uh, I read... Um, I loved Dracula and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and I, I even wrote scripts for plays for both of those, and sort of produced them and starred in them and directed them huh? when I was in like fifth grade. And uh, and then you know one thing led to another and ended up going into law. My father was a was a country lawyer, um, and I saw him do a murder trial, and it was better than Perry Mason. You know, it was better than something on TV. Right. He defended he defended an indigent older man with a tracheotomy and uh, and actually got him off for, for self-defense. And I decided then and there, I was in junior high when I saw that. I, it was going to be a lawyer. And then I, I we had a, a woman from India, a college student, stay with us while she was going to um, a, a local college in Idaho. And she said, you know, Mark, you ought to broaden your horizons and go overseas and study for a while. And, and so I looked into it and international road response to this exchange program and I became an exchange student in um, as a junior in high school and they asked me where I wanted to go and this was 1978 and I I decided I wanted to go someplace you know just completely different um I knew nothing about Japan my image of Japan was uh people dressed in samurai clothing with uh Ah, uh, swords on an assembly line making Toyota cars. What <laughs>
0: what a, what a um, combination!
1: That was sort of all I knew, and but it but it was exotic and obviously completely different. So I ended up going to Japan, and while I was in Japan, my my host father I was way way out in the boonies, but my host father went to Tokyo on business, and he came back and he said he met this Japanese lawyer. He called him an international lawyer who spoke fluent Japanese and fluent English and. New U.S. law and Japanese law and helped them put together this deal with an American or was helping together this deal with an American company. And um, that sounded really cool to me. I, I had no idea what that entailed, but international lawyer really resonated with me. And maybe it's because it was close to international man of mystery. I don't know, but it, it, it really resonated and I decided, okay, th- this is what I want to do. Um, again, I had no idea. You know, had I known how much work was involved, I might not have done it. But I ended up at law school in New York, and then I started practicing in New York. And there was always this idea, I want to write a novel. And, and then I was going back and forth to Japan and working with Japanese clients in the U.S., doing deals in the U.S. and also uh, non-Japanese companies doing deals in Japan. And I just had this idea that writing something about an international lawyer um, who was bilingual, you know, w- would, be a, would be a fun protagonist. And uh, my son is uh, half Japanese, and I thought, oh, maybe it'd be interesting if uh, you know he was biracial, and so that got me started. And you know, you hear that uh, all all novels are uh, autobiographical to a certain extent, particularly the the, the first one, right. and and that was true here. Although it it really did morph over time, and and um, torn the protagonist did morph into his own person. Um, but uh but that that I, I and i wrote it i started it when i was um 55 and um i, I started then because I, I i decided if i don't write it down i'm never going to do it and um and i i set deadlines for the manuscript i had no idea Howard, how much work was actually involved <laughs> right and then you finish the manuscript the, the first time and, and you're so excited and that's where the work begins cuz writing is really rewriting yes and then you get an editor I got an editor and and uh, and that's where there's there's kind of a new kind of pain that, that <laughs> begins there because the first draft is for yourself right and and it's a real struggle because um, and I, I don't want to drone on about this but fiction is completely different from legal writing and I thought I was a good writer but I knew nothing about writing fiction and and it, it's completely different from legal writing in a variety of ways. And one is that in legal writing, it, it, you know, you 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 want to give the conclusion up front, right? Mm-hmm. So that the client has to wade through the 10 pages of, right. you know, single sentence analysis, right? Fitchkin is the total opposite of that. You hide the ball all or you want to all the way until the end, right? And uh, and another uh, example of a major difference is in legal writing, you want to be very precise, very concise and suck all of the emotion out of it so that you don't want to be triggering the client, right? You don't want to trigger their imagination either. You don't want to trigger their imagination or their emotion. You just, it's kind of like Dragnet, just the facts, man, right? So why you just give them the conclusion? You know, you outline the facts that you base the conclusion on and then you have an analysis of the law, right? But with fiction, you actually want to be triggering the reader with every page, right? And if you're not, you're failing because they're probably not going to continue to read, right? And as Gaiman, I think it was Neil Gaiman who said, your job as as a fiction writer is to get the reader to continue to turn the page and not Disappoint them at, with the ending. Right. So that's all you need to do, as he said. Um, and and then, unlike legal writing, in addition to triggering them, you want to leave things to their imagination. So you want to give them like you know, if you're describing a room, one thing I did was I would overwrite my description of the room because I was trying to get it just right. But then you learn that well, really, you just want to give the reader enough for their imagination to fill in all the white spaces and You know certain hooks that are going to relate to what's going to happen in that particular scene. So it was it was really very very different. Um, And then there's a lot of subjectivity in it, right? A lot more with legal writing. So it was a really big challenge for me. And then you get the editor comes back with comments, and they they send the comments back. It's called in the form of what's called a critique sandwich. And so it this is great. You know, great. You did all these things right, and then you get but and the only <laughs> thing the only stuff where it's like provided however that right the only substantive meaningful comments come after the but right it's kind of like when somebody says no offense but <laughs> you know? and that's the stuff you really need to focus on because that's where they they're telling you, you have issues and it's like a stake through the heart each one of those you know and and you you end up you know having sleepless nights and then After a while, you calm down and you're like, yeah, you know, maybe you need to address all uh, 48 of these points. Right. And then at the end of it, um, the other piece of bread is, but keep it up. You're doing great. You know, (laughs) I want to see it again. And because, you know, in legal writing, you know, when we were growing up as lawyers, the partner or the senior associate would come in and just throw their comments unceremoniously on your desk when they used to mark them up by hand right? And yeah. it's like, you need to fix this, right? Yeah. And you you didn't take offense. It was just like, okay, well, that's part of the job. But in, in fiction, people are so concerned that, you know, people are sensitive because, and they have to be, to be good artists, right? So editors are very concerned that you're going to, once they send you the comments, um, you're going to split your wrist, right? Or stop <laughs> writing. Um, and uh, so they, they put it in this form of a, a critique sandwich, um, which the sandwich over time, you know, the more you get it edited, um, it gets smaller, but it's still painful every
0: day. That is phenomenal. That's such a great description. And a number of the comments you make made, you, you said Neil Damon, is that right? Neil Damon. Neil Damon. Yeah. Uh, but also come out of books I've read by Stephen King on writing and Mary Carr right. on writing. And right. I don't know if you've seen the George Saunders book. Um, a swim in a pond in the rain. I uh, highly recommended. So Saunders has taught a class, a writing class at Syracuse for decades, and I describe this book as uh, a written version of his class. And and when I was reading it, so he ta- he talks about the writing process, but then he's got I think it's six Russian short stories in the book, and the way I talk about it is as if we had a class. We all read the first page. Of the first Russian short story that was in the book, and then he provided an analysis—actually, two different kinds of analysis—of what was written on that first page. And then you read the next page, and so on and so forth. And then for the second book, you—I excuse me—the second short story, you read the short story, then he provides the analysis, and so on. And it's just great. And again, it's consistent with everything you've said, including to to write a book, to write a novel, write a sentence, and that sentence has to. Encourage your reader to read the next sentence, and so on. And it's just, uh, I'm sure it's a very difficult process. I haven't done it. I've done a little bit of writing more in the nature of memoirs, and I try to make sure they are not fiction. Uh, but having said that, uh, the fiction process sounds fascinating, including uh, K- Stephen King and others have talked about how they don't know how the characters will develop. You know, They let the characters develop on their own. And then,
1: yeah, Stephen King says that and, and it was in the middle of writing Lot of Lightning, the characters did take over, which was <laughs> which was really sort of interesting when they sort of took on their own when they had their own persona. And I would be trying to write something about them or something they did or said and I realized well that's out of characters so of Army Punk. Yeah. Um and um and I'd have to change it. Well that takes you off, you know, in a different directions and um and you really, you know, whether they be good or bad, you start to identify with the characters and feel for them as well. Yeah. Um, there, there are several characters in my book that I I really feel for them. And um, I was actually thinking today that there, there's one character that it, it, it could have gone a, a different way for that character. But yeah, it's, it's not easy. But my advice is just sit down and, and don't leave anything out of that first draft. Right. You can always... You will end up cutting. Don't self-edit. Don't worry about whether it's appropriate or mean or whether you're being weird or you know or uh, whatever. Put it all down, and then you know you can you can always edit later.
0: Right. Um, right. So tell, tell us okay. about tell us about the book. Tell us. I, I, I hesitate to cut you off because this is absolutely fascinating. And oh, I'm sorry. No, not at all. And and so valuable. I find it very valuable. I expect others will as well.
1: Well, thank you. Um so the, the book is about a lawyer, um, but he's got this client who she has invented um this lightning on demand technology that is scalable, so it can work in your home or it could be, you know, utility side. And she has figured out how clouds, not only how cloud street lightning, which it's actually a gray area in the science community, that. that the theory is known, but nobody knows exactly how the mechanics work. But she's figured it out, and she's also figured out how to replicate it. It, it works so well that it's going to replace all fossil fuels and all other renewable energy sources, nuclear energy, dams, everything, the hydro, everything. Now, obviously, this is extremely disruptive, and uh, there are certain uh, forces that are not happy about it. There's a lot of of different, you know, countries, industries, companies, individuals who are not happy about it, will not be happy about it. And somebody wants to stop it, or, or some entity. And it's about how their lives are turned upside down. And they're just a couple of nerds. He's a technology lawyer right a technology back. He's got a science background. She's a serial entrepreneur. This is her third business, and she took all the proceeds from selling the last one um, to develop this one. And uh, you know they're not used to they're, they're bookworms. They're not used to having people threatening their lives.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: and, and so that's what it's about is um, all of the drama. That they go through. And there's a little bit of uh, the, uh, there's a love story mixed in there as well.
0: So a lot, a lot of overlaps with uh, the Elizabeth Holmes story the new technology, oh, okay. dis- disruptive technology, the love affair that's going on.
1: And it's somewhat complicated because she's actually half, too. So her father is a white American and her mother's Japanese. Um, She was a translator on the military, on a military base when he was a fighter pilot. Um, And for Torn, his father was Japanese and his mother um, is a lawyer in Alaska, actually, where he grew up. (laughs) Um, And uh, so they have a lot in common, but they're in Japan. And Japan obviously has a very different culture from the U.S. It's not a Judeo-Christian based culture um and uh so there are a lot of obviously cultural differences um but japan is a you know extremely modern nation as well and he's an international lawyer right he's a cross-border guy at a global law firm so um he's used to living his life on airplanes and uh this the, the what what happens to them ends up requiring him to travel quite a bit to try to figure out what's
0: going on. I don't recall as much drama in my long legal career or in my, <laughs> ba- or, or in my banking career, which was also long. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of drama. And I don't think anybody ever threatened my life. I did feel uneasy with one client or another now and again, but um, this sounds like a lot more than I bargained for, than I, I, I was involved in. I, I, I think John Grisham, another, another lawyer turned writer of legal thrillers was Grisham at all a role model.
1: So I read Grisham's The Partner, which is uh very yeah. interesting to me. Um I am actually a bigger fan of Scott Turrell. Yes. Yeah. And uh so he's been a real inspiration. Um yeah, I actually the first book I read of his was One L, but um I, I really enjoyed his, his novels as well. He's he delves deeper into character development and and but one of the things that happened um during my career, was we had a, a Japanese actually a Japanese client um, that had pri- proprietary technology that they developed around the turn of the uh, 19th century. I think it was 1905, and uh, then they continued to develop uh, all this proprietary technology in, in actually the chemical space. And they had a um, they had plants in China and in um, Thailand and all all over actually Asia. And the U.S. And one of their, at the time it was patented, um, proprietary technologies was stolen by another Asian company. And uh, we ended up representing that, them in connection with the trade secret misappropriation and also patent infringement. Um, And that was a fascinating case because it was really sort of cloak and dagger, uh, sort of James Bond-esque-like stuff, the way they, they, they literally stole it. Yeah. And so that experience to a certain extent informed um some of my writing. But I never experienced I I did ride motor ride motorcycles a lot when I was in Japan. I love motorcycle riding and so that there's some of that in the book so as well.
0: A lot of biographical aspects to the book.
1: Yeah, there are there there are definitely some there's no. And again it's because I know a lot about riding motorcycles in Japan. And so <laughs> that was easy to write about. Interestingly, the first chapter I ever wrote was about a motorcycle ride. Japan's a wonderful country for motorcycle riding because the roads are very well-maintained, but they're very windy. There's lots of beautiful mountain roads, and uh, the countryside is beautiful, and, and people are very safe drivers there, and cars are taught to watch out for motorcycles. And so it's just a wonderful place to to ride a motorcycle. But the first chapter I wrote, wrote was about uh, a motorcycle, one of the motorcycle rides, and uh, that's not even in the book. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of chapters up on the cutting room floor. One of the comments I got from my editor was less motorcycle fetishness. Um,
0: <laughs> but so, you were comfortable writing about motorcycles.
1: So, yeah. So, you know, you end up they, killing your darlings, as they say. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the rewrites for the reader. And and I must say, um, you know, after I do a rewrite and there were many, I'd go back and reread it, and it definitely flowed better.
0: Oh, good. Um, so you're happy with your editor?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's very good. tough taskmaster. Um, the uh, development editor was very good, um, as was the line editor, and uh, the proofreaders have been very good, too.
0: That's, that's amazing. Um, so, so lots of background in your own life, lots of biographical background that goes into the novel. You wrote what you were comfortable with. Uh, the book is coming out, is it June four?
1: It's um, available for pre-order for May 14th and for delivery from June 14th, just in time for Father's Day, as my publicist likes to say.
0: There you go. There you go. I think I'll ask for it. That, that's wonderful. What are you now reading?
1: So um, uh, there's another recovering lawyer by the name of uh, Ronald S. Barack. I think it's S. Barack. And, uh, he wrote um a series of uh, thrillers, I think they're called the brooks uh, um lotello uh, series and uh, one of them is about uh, it's basically a who done it um at a writing conference and um <laughs> he really does a wonderful job of describing all the players in the publishing industry so that the the want the successful authors the wannabe published writers the high flying agents the publishing companies the publishers the website developers and and the book all takes place in a hotel the whole story takes place in this hotel basically the well, most of it and uh, as a as a writer it, it was just a lot of fun but there's a there's a lot of it's a it.
0: so what's the name of that uh, book
1: that's called payback payback um. And uh, that was a lot of fun. He he's a very interesting guy. He was a an Olympic gymnast uh, at the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, and then later became a lawyer. He was a partner at Paul Hastings. I think he may have been the co-chairman of Paul Hastings back in the wow. 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and then he wrote another. It's a series, but he wrote he wrote this book. It's called J.K.'s Code, and it's um it's a thriller that's about this child prodigy trying to foil hacking attempts
0: on voting
1: software. It was written before 2020.
0: Well, that's, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. I don't know what his politics are, but he's very funny when he's writing about the political situation in the U.S. Obviously, it's all fiction, but it's infused with, you know, the political situation of the time, obviously, informed informed his writing. And um that was a lot of fun too. And he, he his books are very fast paced. Chapters tend to be short and, and they they whip right along. And then I um have actually been reading two nonfiction books to help with um uh character development. And um one of them is called The Importance of Being Inferior and um or feeling inferior, excuse me. And it was written in nineteen fifty seven um uh, by a woman I think she's either a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and it's it's fascinating. It's about how uh, your inferiority complex or feeling of inferiority can drive you to do great things or you know horrendous things. And it's it's filled with um, uh, anecdotes. And there was another one that I read before that one that came out in 1957. There's a chapter in there on the War of the Sexes, which even though it's what 65 years ago. Um, does not come across as anachronistic even today really and, uh, and she's a good very good writer but that you can feel her emotion when you read that and it's a nonfiction book but when you read that chapter you can you can really feel the emotion in her writing so that was very good and then there's another one in the, the um, that came out in 1964 that is about um, and the, the name of it's escaping me right now. Um, that's about sort of a, it, it, it's linked to the inferiority complex, but the idea is that people are driven by the desire for approval and to avoid disapproval. And if for some reason they, and some people just really seek out approval, other people just want to avoid disapproval. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not they don't care about approval so much. And some people, you know, they want approval and they want to avoid disapproval. And if you can't get what you want, the approval you want, or avoid the disapproval you want, that can lead to the person turning violent or having violence. And that was a fascinating book because even though it's nonfiction, he writes about this fictional town and the different classes basically, um, the different strata in the town and how people behave and and um that wasn't particularly anachronistic either, other than he uses the word I think Negro in that, but that's again nineteen it was published in nineteen sixty four. But that was actually quite interesting as well so as a writer you know when I think about character development now I think about well what what is this what's the inferiority complex what what is this person's you know sensitivity yeah. and what approval are they seeking or what disapproval are they seeking if they can't get that out how's that going to drive their behavior and uh, I'm'm I'm surprised that more people haven't read these books. because so they were both really, really excellent.
0: That's so great. That's that's a great list of books. You, you are a voracious reader. I, I really do look forward to reading your book. As I said about the mystery novels I read, uh, that's not my cup of tea, or I thought. It turns out it was. Uh, I've read uh, John Grisham. I've read a little bit of Toro. Ken Follett uh, was a favorite many, many years ago. And I think there were others. But I haven't read thrillers in a long time, but I'll, I'll certainly read this one. Is there another book on the horizon?
1: Yes, I'm, I'm working on it now. Um, and uh, I wanted to work on it <laughs> quite a bit during January, February, and March, but getting this book out the door ended up taking, I had no idea how much time would be involved in the production phase once the manuscript was quote unquote ready to be published. It's its really, um, it's kind of like going through your
0: first deal. Yeah, right, uh, right. you have no yeah. idea.
1: You have no idea and it's like getting to closing and you think, okay, we're ready. Mm-hmm. And then you end up with all these tasks that you need to do that you thought other people were going, you know, it's like you're the first year associate on the deal. You're responsible for everything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, you have a proofreader, but if the book goes out under your name, and it's got typos, which I'm told inevitably they always do somewhere, um, you know, that's your responsibility. Yeah, um,
0: yeah sure. It's and your book.
1: Reviewing, it's your book. So um, it, it, it's a little bit like a closing and realizing, you know, the closing uh, coming up in two days and, and you still have 50 more things to do that you didn't think you had to do. So, but, but yeah, there's a, another, um, it's a conventional, it's a um, contemporary novel. It's, it's not a thriller, which is not, I understand from a business standpoint, not the smart way to do it. The successful, quote unquote, successful authors these days seem to be writing series. Um, both the indie authors. So they'll have, uh, you know, it's like Jack Reacher. They'll just, you know, do one book after Uh, another.
0: Yes, 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 yes,
1: yes. uh, With the same characters. And the one I'm working on now is completely different. Uh, And I didn't think about writing a series when I wrote Bottle of Lightning. Even though it's the way it ended, and I didn't plan this way at all, it's set up perfectly for a sequel, but I haven't given any any thought to, to a sequel. It's got an ending. It's definitely got an ending. But the way it ended... Um, I can see, and other readers, people who have read it, that this is very well set up for a sequel. But, but I'm actually working on something totally different now.
0: So a, a sign of a great book is when you finish it, uh, you are anxious that the, or when you put it down at any time, you're anxious that the character's life is going on without you. And so right. so this sequel is yeah. being written by the characters, and you'll catch up at some point in time.
1: Well, from your mouth to God's ears, <laughs> I hope that's how re- feel about.
0: That's great. It. Um
1: I hope it's not just, you know, the weak throat, you know, cardboard cutouts of <laughs> uh, characters.
0: I'm sure not. I'm sure not. This has been really great. Really great. You starting off throwing curveball, talking about Moby Dick and and then talking about the writing journey the way you did has just been terrific. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank
1: you for your time, Howard. I know I've got way
0: Oh, oh but here. but this, this is this has been great. So thank you. We'll talk again.
1: All right. Take care.
0: More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. And there were a lot of them. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie provides overall creative direction Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse. Three-year-old Jake continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's baby cousin Francesca, now one and another great source of inspiration for us all. Also a source of inspiration and encouragement, Catherine Lane Mercereau will have formally joined the Wolfpack by the time this podcast is released. Welcome, Catherine. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests, although not today. Thanks to the great anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. And thanks as well to AJ Falari, who is working on the editing with me. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookworms in the wild at gmail.com looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time